Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the special opening event of the 25th anniversary Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Catherine Lockerbie, I'm the director, and it's an absolute delight to welcome you all to the start of what's going to be a packed programme. Over 800 authors from more than 45 different nations. We just can't help ourselves. We can't stop ourselves inviting fascinating writers for you to listen to and talk with. And this opening event this morning is no exception. When we were planning this, I knew from the start that I'd love Ian Rankin to be involved in this. Ian has been involved with the book festival from the very beginning, first as a cub student reporter, and then oh, he wrote a couple of books, you know, it sort of did okay. And of course now he is a shining star of contemporary Scottish writing and later in the festival of course he'll be appearing in his own right talking about his post-rebus work. But we found out that he's also an exceptionally fine interviewer and it seemed completely appropriate that he kick off this anniversary festival by speaking with a significant public figure. And our guest this morning is certainly that. We actually did an event with him a couple of years ago and it was wonderfully engaging, thought-provoking. He is a deep and passionate thinker and also writer, which is all the more remarkable given the pressures of his daily role. Since we had the pleasure of his company a couple of years ago, he's changed his job. <laughs> and the new one is pretty damn demanding. And I think the faint-hearted amongst us would not relish having it right now with the array of domestic, international, economic challenges lining up. Our guest is not faint-hearted. Indeed, one of his books is about and called Courage, a quality he greatly admires in people. Um, he, uh, yes, a, a, a very influential former American president has just called him a man of big brain and good heart, which I think is a very accurate, succinct summary. Like Ian Rankin, he's a local boy made good, a Scot on the global stage. He is from just up the road, just across the Forth. He should be on his summer holidays right now on the beach in the pouring rain with a bucket and spade. Uh, but he's come here today willingly and specifically to talk to us. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very warm book festival welcome to Ian Rankin and the Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. That was lovely. That was lovely. No. Thank you. You got your, you got your notes there? Yeah, I've got my notes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. You don't need to advertise me. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Is this microphone working? It sounds like it is. Um, and luckily, the rain isn't so bad that we need huge amplification as yet. Um, typical book festival weather, I'm afraid, but you might know a little bit about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, your microphone needs to run down a wee bit. Yeah, um, you hear me. Uh, or else you need to stop laughing. Um, stop enjoying yourself. Um, it is. Um, I mean, a real pleasure to have you here and be able to talk to you. Um, you're one of only, and I looked this up, one of four prime ministers to have been educated at a university other than Oxbridge. Yeah. And um, I was very impressed that it was Edinburgh. Um, and so it's nice of you, Dan. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, um, so it's nice of you to come back when you could be in Beijing, um, <laughs> in, enjoying be, the enjoying the sultry warm weather there. To come to come to Edinburgh, break I, your actually, holiday. there is only uh, one other prime minister that's come from the east of Scotland, and that was uh, Lord Rosebery. And whenever a cabinet minute, a cabinet meeting coincided with a race meeting, he always chose to go to the race meeting. <laughs> so he had it in proper perspective. He did well. The, the, both of them involve a little bit of gambling, don't they? <laughs> Absolutely. But um, your, um, your, your, your connection with the book festival, I mean, it's, it's great that you're here to help celebrate 25 years because you were here at the first book yeah, festival. Yeah, this has been a huge thing. This is the world's biggest book festival, and I think we should congratulate Catherine Lockerbie and all her staff and everything that she's done. It's absolutely amazing. Um, I, I was here at the first uh, uh, book festival. I remember meeting Anthony Burgess, uh, the, author, the author then, I was actually a director of mainstream publishing, which uh, luckily is uh, still in existence under Bill Campbell and Peter uh, McKenzie and doing really well. And I became a member of parliament in 1983, 25 years ago. And it just shows how long ago it is. I put on my manifesto when I stood for parliament in 1983, this constituency needs a member of parliament of youth and fresh ideas. <laughs> and at the last election, I put on my manifesto, this constituency needs a member of parliament of maturity and experience. <laughs> But the book festival has got the youth and fresh ideas of being new again. And I was just looking at the program yesterday. It is absolutely fantastic. There are now 250 book festivals around Britain. Edinburgh has led the way 250. So just in every part of Britain, Robin Cook used to t tell me that if he went to Cheltenham to speak a p at a political meeting, uh, hardly anybody would turn up, even if it was free. But if he went to Cheltenham to speak to the book festival, he'd get hundreds of people, even although they had to pay. And I think. I think that just shows that people see book festivals as authentic and Edinburgh has led the way. So congratulations and to all of you as a great audience as well. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it, it, is, it, is a, it has been a great thing. I'm, I'm trying to think if I, I think I was here at the first book festival, although I then left and moved down to London and didn't, I've not been at all of them. But there are actually authors here and, and people attending this book festival who've been to every single book festival, which is exactly. pretty. I mean, that shows you, the, you know, that it keeps reinventing itself mm -hmm. and it keeps bringing interest in people to Edinburgh. You came to Edinburgh as a, a student, um, but you'd been born in Govan. I didn't realise that. You were actually born in Govan, and yeah. then you, you moved at quite a young age to Kirkcaldy. Yeah, my father was a minister, so we moved around the country a bit, but I was brought up in uh, Kirkcaldy. Then I came to Edinburgh uh, for the first time. I was, I was only 16, actually, to come to Edinburgh University in 1967, and I arrived in Edinburgh on one day, went to see an eye specialist because I had a rugby injury, and ended up in the Royal Infirmary the next day. And so I spent most of my first year at university in hospital <laughs> getting eye injuries. I was quite amazed at the National Health Service because in 1967, you will not believe this, uh, but at 8 o'clock every night in uh, the eye pavilion ward that I was in, they used to come round with a trolley and they used to ask you, and I was only 16, do you want Guinness or do you want beer or do you want wine? And I knew the National Health Service was free, but I didn't realise it was free, free beer. Uh, so I suppose my coming to Edinburgh from Fife was a bit like... Uh, what Mark Twain, Mark Twain uh, came from a very remote rural community in America and went to the, 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 the frontier town of Nevada. Mm. And he's totally shocked after his, uh, his upbringing to see it was full of gambling and uh, drinking and every sort of uh, entertainment available. And he said as he got there, this was no place for a Puritan and I did not long remain one. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's saying something about Kirkcaldy or something about Edinburgh. <laughs> Kirkcaldy's... Uh, when um, you're, uh, Kirkcaldy High, you were part of the reason you came to Edinburgh at 16 was that you were part of a kind of house, hot housing experiment. I, I was part of an experiment where people were worried at that time about the failure rate at universities. So 
if people were to go to school early and have more time at, at school to prepare for university, people thought they would do better. In fact, it was a totally disastrous experiment. It didn't work, uh, and it was uh, latterly abandoned. But the, the basic idea was, and it's the right idea, that people should get all the preparation necessary so that they can succeed at, at university. And um, we're still, you know, we've still got to do more to make sure that everybody from whatever background gets the mm. chance uh, and uh, is encouraged to go to university. That's why university summer schools, that's why sending people out from universities into all sorts of communities matters. Uh, but it, this was an experiment that failed, and I'm, a I'm the result of a failed experiment. <laughs> so, were you at, um, this is going to get out in the papers tomorrow. I wish you were. <laughs> Don't you, worry. You've got, I, I, keep, I told him on the phone things not to say. You, you'll be the... Uh, <laughs> You'll, you'll be the interviewer on Newsnight soon. <laughs> I don't like that. Um, do, when did you get interested in politics? Was that something that happened to you very early on? Was it at high school? Was it as a you grew up in Fife, or was it when you got to Edinburgh? No, no my, my brother and I uh, were involved very early on. There was a campaign, and it's really tragic. We're having to run the same campaign again, called the Freedom from Hunger campaign. And some people may remember this. It, it was to draw people's attention to famine in the 19, uh, early 1960s. So we got involved in uh, uh, running events to raise money for this Freedom From Hunger campaign. And that's really how I got involved. My brother was far more entrepreneurial than me. And he wrote to all these people around the world and asked them to contribute to this newspaper he was running to raise money for charity. So he's got John Glenn, the first um, astronaut. He got Harold Wilson at that time, just about to be prime minister, write for it. He got all these people to write for it. I was actually the sports editor. That's what I was relegated to. But I, I looked back a few years ago at some of the, the headlines. I mean, we, we were pretty amateurist. It was things like, uh, woman killed, so it was an accident, by Michael Henderson. <laughs> uh, so many mistakes were made. Unemployment hopes, I remember, was one of our stupid headlines. <laughs> but uh, that was the day when we tried to raise money for, for charity but that you can, way. I mean, and you can... a, it is a real tragedy that 2008, the biggest problem that the world faces at the moment is actually famine and uh, there are 100 million people facing famine at the moment, and that's why I want on September the 25th that the United Nations actually put special money available to deal with. It, it, it's, it's, it's just completely unacceptable. But, but you, can, you, can, you can work towards um, getting rid of famine, you can argue against it. It doesn't, need to, doesn't necessarily politicise you. It doesn't mean that you're going to um, become involved with a political party. No, and I think some of the greatest campaigns being run at the moment are being run by uh, non-governmental organisations and uh, Make Poverty History, for example, which uh, culminated in Edinburgh, uh, in your novel, actually, yeah. in your novel, your last novel, in 2005, the great march in Edinburgh that I was uh, a part of, is, is an example of how people can change things. And what you've got to do is you've got to build a consensus uh, about the need for change, then persuade people that change has got to happen, and then people have got to make that change happen. So politics must have a role in the end, because the Politics has got to change things at some point, but the pressure that builds up from people being involved in community action and all sorts of different groups is, uh, is, is phenomenal and, 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 can, and can make a huge, huge difference. Well, I mean, let's talk about the, 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 the book, um, well, one of your books. Um, you've, you've published quite a few in the past year or 18 months, um, but the one that really interested me to start with was Courage, um, Eight Portraits. And these are eight people that you respect, eight people you think did extraordinary things, went up against it. Um, how easy was it to come up with eight names? Was that a case of whittling it down? No, I wanted to choose the great causes of the 20th century. You know, if we were here 25 years ago, nobody would have thought then that apartheid would have ended by now. Nobody probably would have thought that Nelson Mandela could be free. 
nobody would have thought the Cold War was going to end. People thought that was a permanent feature of our lives and that the Berlin Wall was there, was there forever. And the impossible can happen. And I wanted to look at the great causes of the last century, the anti-apartheid movement against fascism, uh, against anti-Semitism, uh, the persecution of uh, Jews and the Holocaust. I wanted to look at uh, civil rights in America, Martin Luther King. I wanted to look at democracy and Sun Suu Kyi. And then you chose a figure who represented that. If you take, if you take Aung San Suu Kyi, the Burmese leader, I, I do think it's a tragedy at the moment that, that not enough is being done to make sure that she can be released and Burma can have democracy. And the story of Aung San Suu Kyi is just remarkable because 20 years ago, she was sitting at home. Uh, our husband was a professor at Oxbridge uh, and she got a phone call saying her mother was ill. And her mother stayed in Rangoon in Burma. She was Burmese by birth. So she went back to Burma, found that there were protests about the need for democracy in Burma. Her father had been the prime minister of Burma previously and had been assassinated. So she led the protests. And from then on, for the next 20 years, uh, her, her husband was not able to come and visit her in, uh, in, in Rangoon. She could have left the country, and, but she would have uh, lost the leadership and the, the need to fight for democracy. And her husband, whom I met, and he was a great guy, he died tragically of cancer, unable to see his wife ever again because the Burmese leader would not uh, allow him to come into the country to see her. And her two sons have grown up, uh, and they've grown up in uh, one in England, one in, uh, in, in America, and they've grown up not able to see their mother, mother either. And she has fought this lone fight for democracy in Burma. And you've got to go behind this woman. What made her tick? What made it happen? How did she give up the quiet... Uh, you know, of an English uh, country life almost to go to Burma to be now under house arrest and having won an election in Burma and not being able to take power. Now, before I finish in politics, I want Aung San Suu Kyi not only to be released but to be in power in Burma. And that's one of the great causes of the 20th century. Every country should be a democracy and Burma is one of these countries that has been prevented from doing so. But the human story behind that just as the human story behind Raoul Wallenberg and trying to save the Jews, or Martin Luther King and what happened to him when he was fighting for civil, civil rights, or Robert Kennedy, who died 40 years ago, or Cecily Saunders, whom I feature. And the reason I feature her is because what is the uh, last great mystery, I suppose? It's death itself. And she tried to conquer people's fears of death. And she did it by leading the hospice movement, to which uh, I think uh, many of us uh, owe a huge uh, debt of gratitude for the work that she did. Mm. Are you able to communicate with um, Aung San Suu Kyi? There is some uh, communication with, uh, with people around her. Uh, but, you know, here she is in house arrest. Uh, I think that she's now been in, either in house arrest or been in difficulty with the Burmese authorities for nearly 20, 20 years. Mm. Uh, they promise that she'll be released. They promise that there'll be democracy in Burma. It doesn't happen. We had this terrible cyclone, tens of thousands, the callousness about the treatment of human life in Burma, absolutely unacceptable. Uh, we tried to do something about it, but we will continue to pressure, and we need China and India and all the countries around Burma to actually pressure for de democracy and for human rights as well. But this is one of the great tragic stories of the last... Uh, she's a Nobel Prize winner now. She is recognized. But in the same way that there was pressure for the release of Mandela, there should be the same pressure for the release of Aung San Suu Kyi. Have you got a definition for courage? I think lo lots of people think of courage as fearlessness or, or, or people who are without fear. And that, that's the traditional view that uh, you have either a, a soldier or someone who's in the military who's without fear, and there are people, undoubtedly, and I've, I've got a, another book called Wartime Courage that is looking at that, great heroes of the, of the Second World War. 
but actually courage, most people who are courageous um, take Roald Wallenberg. Mm. He actually was pretty fearful, he said, about his own life and everything else. But there was something more important than fear that motivated what he wanted to do. And most people of courage are people who have got a strong view about what they want to achieve, strong beliefs, strong ideals, and they have the willpower to see it through. Now, you can be um, generous, you can be kind, you can be uh, dignified, you can be humble, you can uh, be idealistic, you can be a dreamer, all these things. But without courage, you're not going to be able to achieve the things that you set out to do. And that's why courage is seen as the finest human quality of all. It seems to me that quite uh, several of the people in this book, and I'm thinking especially of Martin Luther King and um, uh, uh, Wallenberg, um, chose to do what they did. I mean, they could have walked away. They didn't have to. It wasn't if in wartime, what yeah. you uh, courage, bravery, heroism is sometimes instantaneous. It's immediate. It's unthinking. Yeah. You just <clears throat> jump into a situation. But they had a lot of time to think about would they take on this role. And I think it seemed to me that you were very interested in what it was in their character. Yeah, absolutely. Because you kept coming back to it again and again in Wallenberg. What See, made them do this? Well, you, you, it was like you Wallenberg, didn't know and you needed to know what made them do this. Raoul Wallenberg was uh, a Swede in a neutral country in the Second World War. He was an aristocrat. He was uh, a rich businessman. He was in many ways a sort of international playboy. Um, he wasn't the first choice for this role in, uh, in Hungary. Yet he asked to go to Hungary and he saved the lives of at least 30,000 Jews in Hungary because he issued them with Swedish passports, forced the Germans to accept that, had this huge confrontation with Eichmann, Eichmann yeah. uh, told them that the war was going to be lost, told them that the Russian troops were on their way to, 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 to Hungary, frightened Eichmann, who was regarded as one of the most powerful of the, of the Nazis. But he became totally fearless uh, because he believed so passionately in the cause that he was fighting, and that was that the discrimination against uh, Jews was, was such, and the massacre that was taking place. I was at Yad Vashem, the, um, Israeli, uh, the, the Jewish war memorial in, in, in Jerusalem, uh, only, only a few weeks ago, and the stories of what we didn't do mm. and, and the failures for not acting are so awful that to have someone like Wallenberg, who comes from a neutral country, makes this choice, risks his life, and then gives his life, because he disappears after the Second World War, we think the Russians. We think we think we think from all the evidence we've got, he was arrested by the Russians, held in prison, and 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 and, and died. Uh, but he was uh, so determined to release Jews, he probably made the Russians think that he was he was trying to take over the take over the country. So he he was uh, he disappeared. But his achievements are, are just legendary. I mean, one man making such a huge mm -hmm. difference. Uh, there's a Scottish um, uh, nurse, actually, um, uh, called Jane Haining, who was a, a school, she ran a, she ran a, a girls' school in, uh, in, in Budapest as well. Uh, and in the book on wartime courage, I'm featuring on her, because here was a woman who went from uh, uh, Ayrshire uh, to Budapest uh, so that she could help uh, uh, bring up Jewish girls who were mainly orphaned. And then she was arrested by the Nazis simply for, for holding uh, uh, these, uh, these girls uh, you know, and keeping them safe. And she was taken to Auschwitz and she disappeared at the end of the Second World War. She was gassed to Auschwitz. And such was the awful bureaucracy of the Germans that she was a missionary also from the Church of Scotland. But the Church of Scotland in Edinburgh got a death certificate sent to them from Auschwitz the death of Jane Haining, and there's now a film being made about her. So there are brave people that we don't even know about yeah. and are starting to find out about yeah. who did extraordinary things during the Second World because she believed strongly that no Jewish person should be discriminated against. She went out, was warned that she had to leave, stayed there, mm. uh, and eventually gave her life to save 
a, a number of Jewish girls. And the crime that she was eventually arrested for was that she had wept because she had had to sew the Star of David onto the dresses of these Jewish girls. And it was, that was why the Nazi decided to arrest her. Now, these are tremendous stories well, of heroism I mean, I, and courage. I, I mean, we're going to move on to the um, everyday heroes in a bit, which are a lot, lots of um, uh, people that people that nobody will have heard of, or almost nobody will have heard <coughs> of. But even in this book, I mean, I'd, I'd, um, Cicely Saunders, I don't think was even a name to me. Some of them were really just names to me, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, um, uh, and Edith Cavell. Cicely Saunders but, is also an amazing story. Because yeah, but what, what I found was, um, Gordon, was that, the, you know, that I was expecting these to be dry and a bit worthy. With respect. Thank you. And, <laughs> and you know, um, I, I, I've been learning but, from your novels. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but they're not at all. There, there's a real engagement between you and these characters. You can see that you are honestly not just engaged by them, but fascinated by them. That you you've, you're writing these essays not just as primers for those of us who might not know their life mm. stories, but even when we do think we know the life story, like Robert Kennedy. Um, you, you bring out, or Nelson Mandela, you're able to bring out the character and, and you're able to ask questions about why did they do, what, you know, when they knew their life was in danger, why did they keep doing what they did? Um, and it's a very interesting question because what it comes the, down to again and again is altruism, isn't it? It's well, the doing only good person for the, just I, to do good. The only person I've really had the chance to put these questions to is, is Nelson Mandela himself because all the others are either dead or I, I can't really, I can't mm. really talk, talk, talk to them. Uh, Cecily Saunders, by the way, was just an amazing woman because she had to nurse dying two of her uh, partners that she was associate, she associated with. And so she learned how uh, the hospice movement could actually work. So it was also born of the terrible experiences of, of having to nurse people as, the, as they died. But Nelson Mandela, you see, it is incredible. He has no bitterness. I mean, Mandela was held in prison for nearly 30 years. Uh, he had tuberculosis, he was not well as a result of his prison experience. You can see that the scars are still there. But on the night before they came out of prison, Nelson Mandela called all his people together and said, look, we could go out and take revenge and there could be a bloodbath in South Africa. Or we can go out and build and reconcile this community and build a community where there is, uh, where there is uh, reconciliation and there is no hint of uh, revenge. And it's the lack of bitterness of Nelson Mandela after everything that, that had happened to him. When you, when you meet him first time, the first time I met him, he said, ah, he said, representative of the British Empire. <laughs> but he's become such a good friend that when uh, John, my son, was born, he phoned me. It was, was one of the great moments in my life to congratulate me on the birth of our, our son. And even at 90, you see, Nelson Mandela, he came to spoke, speak in London a few weeks ago. And uh, he, uh, he then had the concert and, uh, you know, all the, but he, 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 said, he said then that he had climbed one mountain, which was to, to, to tackle apartheid and end it. But now he wanted people to climb another mountain, which was to tackle the, the, the evil of, of world poverty. And so Nelson Mandela at 90 has got the same determination that he had 30, 40 years ago uh, when, when he fought against apartheid and risked his life. And remember, when he was on trial uh, in that court, he said to his lawyer, Joe Joffe, who's also written a book about what happened, if we are found guilty and I am to be executed, there's to be no appeal. Because he was making his statement on a point of principle that apartheid was wrong. So he, he braved all that, all the personal tragedies, his son has died of AIDS, another son died in a car crash, his marriage, everything else, and yet he is a man without, without bitterness, urging us to move on to the, the next uh, fight. And, and what he says about Africa is, uh, is absolutely, um, absolutely fascinating. I think it was Bishop Tutu who said that uh, uh, they had the Bible, that is the British and others who came to Africa, and we had the land. And now we have the Bible and they have the land. <laughs> 
that uh, you know the the end of of of, uh, of of colonialism and apartheid is such a huge feature of the 20th century that you can't write about people of courage without write, writing 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 about that. Mm -hmm. There's a great story told about uh, Richard uh, Nixon going to. It's 50 years uh, since uh, Ghana became independent. And there's this great story about Richard Nixon. He goes to um, Ghana uh, for the celebration of the 50 years uh, for, of, of the of the freedom of uh, Ghana, which is now 50 years old, and there's been celebrations in the last year. And Nixon doesn't quite not know what to do when he arrives in, uh, in Ghana. So he, and he goes into the crowd and starts shaking hands with people and says, how does it feel to be free? And how does it feel to be free? And instead, it's the third person. He says, how does it feel to be free? And the guy says, how should I know? I come from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, now the, the, the lesson of this is America has won its civil rights. But Africa has still a long way to go to get social and economic rights, and that's one of the great causes of the next few years. There's still 40 million children in Africa don't go to school. It's just outrageous. Well, um, civil rights, um, you recently met Barack Obama. Um, I just wondered if you thought he was a person of courage from uh, what you know of him, and what qualities you think he has that Hillary Clinton obviously lacks. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let, let, let me say, first of all, I think, I think Hillary Clinton has made huge um, inroads into both um, uh, showing that women can take over the top job in America. And I've got tremendous respect for Hillary Clinton. Uh, Barack Obama is campaigning on, on change. And uh, he has got a great message going, going, going out to the country about how America can play a bigger part in the world uh, and that America uh, should come together as a country. Uh, John McCain is a great hero as well, and I, I've, met, I've met him, and he is one of the, uh, the great uh, military heroes of our time because he, he was held in prison in Vietnam, showed enormous courage by refusing to be released, even when he had the chance to do so, until the rest of his men were released. So you've got two uh, very courageous people, McCain and Obama, stand, standing, standing in America. Uh, Obama, I was lucky enough uh, to meet when I was in America and talked to quite, quite a lot of times and, and met uh, uh, ten, 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 ten days ago. And I, I think he has got a very powerful message that America can play a, a far... You see, you see what, what we're moving towards, if, if this is the theme of the 20th, 20th century, that we got rid of imperialism, apartheid, uh, fascism, and anti-Semitism, and these were some of the great causes. 21st century, the real issue is, how can we create a global citizenship? How, how, if, if you look at the internet, and I've been reading a lot about it to, to try and work out where, where, how we can build, if you like, links between different countries and peoples through the, through the internet, people can communicate around the world now in a way that they never could before. And so people are finding that the barriers that they used to think existed between religions, between countries, between traditions, are far less important than they thought they were. And people are now able to communicate in such a way that uh, foreign policy can never be the same again. So in Burma, we found out about what was happening in Burma because of the monks uh, blogging, basically, and telling us the violence that was being inflicted upon them. In Zimbabwe, the reason that Mugabe couldn't fix the first election was that people had, through their mobile telephones, taken photographs of the results at the election stations right outside in the outlying districts, so he couldn't fix these results. In the Philippines, a president fell because people texted each other and they all assembled to complain about corruption and it was called the first coup de text because people were actually texting. And so people can communicate with each other around the world and you may not stay in the same street but you're on the same network. And I think this is one of the most uh, fascinating things that's gonna change the world because people will not let events like Rwanda, you know, you know in, in the Rwanda Children's Museum, uh, if, if you go there, 
a million people remember died in a hundred days of, of massacre. There's a young boy and his story, and he says just before he's murdered, he said, don't worry, mum, the United Nations are coming. And they never did. Mm. Now, I don't think that could happen again because I think we would know from different countries through the ability to communicate what indeed was happening. And I don't think the world would allow politicians to do nothing in the face of these massacres, in the face of what's happening. And what we've got to build up now, I think, and this is the lesson of uh, Barack Obama and everybody else, is this idea of a global citizenship that we have responsibilities to each other and we share the same ideas as each other. And what people are now finding, of course, is uh, that the world's religions, they, they have less that divide them than they thought. Yeah. And all of them have a central golden rule, a sort of moral sense uh, that you do to others as you would be done to yourselves. And people can find that they have that sentiment in common. And that's what's going to change the, the 21st century. The thing about quite a number of the people in, in Courage um, is that they do have a strong um, religious belief or religious sensibility to go along with the altruism. And I just wonder, you know, in the 21st century, um, fewer people believing in God, going to church, what have you, how do we get that sense of altruism? How do we persuade these, this global community or these small pockets of communities around, the, around Britain, never mind around the globe, um, to do good, because that you know you, 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 that seems at odds to me with the, I mean the message of Britain's everyday heroes, which is all these ordinary and in inverted commas people setting up schemes. They just get a good idea, they set up the scheme themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Self, it's self-perpetuating. They raise their own funds in a lot of the cases. They you know they they've got the impetus to keep it going. That Britain seems to be at odds with the kind of chav knife culture Britain that we're being told about in the tabloids every day. Yeah, and I, I wanted to, to, to look at, you know, if I'm right that courage is not some sort of uh, almost godlike quality of fearlessness, it's, it's actually people who feel strongly about things and who want and show the willpower to do something about it, then the uh, ability to be courageous is not something that's reserved for a small elite. Uh, lots of people can show it in, in everyday life. And I wanted to look at people in the different communities of our country who are doing amazing things. I mean, I was uh, talking about uh, a young guy in London who uh, they actually call him uh, Britain's new Barack Obama mm. <laughs> because, because he, he came through a, a, a very knife-infested culture, got into a lot of trouble with the law, but is now leading community work to help children in exactly the same, the same position. And all over the country, you've got these stories of people who are, are doing a massive amount, of, massive amount of, uh, of good, who are doing things Look, there are, what, six million people involved in one way or another in voluntary activity at any time. And it just shows that there is this tremendous potential for good in our country. And I think link that to people's ability to communicate with each other at a global level. Mm. And you've got this sense that the world could be quite different in the next 10, 10, 10 or 20 years. And, and, we can, and we can make it different. But it's, I mean, without you perhaps knowing it, it's almost an argument against the nanny state. Because these are self-starters no, and these are people who've done this without any government intervention or intervention even at a local yeah, but if, you, if you take, there are six million carers in this country, and this is a very good example, they're doing an incredible job, uh, and they are caring for relatives or caring for members of the, the, their own family who are in some of the most difficult, difficult circumstances and situations. Now, if you say they're doing a great job, that's true, but these carers don't want the government to walk away from them. No, I wasn't they, talking they want about the government carers, to help them. Yeah, but I mean, but everybody who's doing voluntary cases. work, they want actually, usually, Usually what they want is a partnership where they can have support to do the things that they need to do. And a lot of cases, these things come down to, to money and the need to provide facilities and amenities and help. Uh, and in other cases, it, it, the, the people are campaigning for a better either welfare system or a better 
uh, set of opportunities for people. So, you know, the idea that uh, the voluntary sector and, and, and uh, you know, in, in 1948 when the health service was formed, it's, it's actually in Glasgow, the students went to Glasgow University and they put up, uh, put up the red flag uh, to celebrate the, 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 the health service. It's said that in Edinburgh, uh, they held a voluntary, a, a service of commemoration because of the loss of the voluntary and charitable sector. And there was just a different attitude. But now we realize that both the National Health Service and the voluntary work and the charitable work should go together. Mm. You, you need both. You don't just need one at the expense so of the other. You need both, I think. And that's, that's really what Britain's do, Everyday Heroes is telling me. Well, I mean, do we, do we celebrate the, these heroes or do we try and create more of them? And if we try and create more of them, how do we do that? Well, I think you celebrate them and you create more as a result of that. If people see people, um, uh, doing uh, great things, uh, then these are role models for, for, for young people. I mean, one of the things we're doing at the moment is uh, is trying to bring out the talent uh, in all uh, young people in this country. So we, we're starting, uh, if you like, talent competitions and talent events, uh, and in schools, asking people, you know, you've got a talent, let's find it. And my father used to say, you know, everybody has, a bit like the parable of the talents, everybody has a talent. Everybody should have the chance to develop that talent, and everybody should be challenged to develop that talent. And I think there are large numbers of people in our country who've got this uh, hidden potential, undeveloped potential, unfulfilled potential, and whether it's in education, or whether it's in helping other people, or whether it's in communication skills, or whether it's in technical skills, we should be bringing out the talent in every young person in our you country, and that's really what a good education system I mean, is about. In the book, you quote John Buchan on that. Um, yep. And it was a quote I didn't know. Our task is not to put the greatness back into humanity, but to elicit it, for the greatness is already there. Well, John Buchan, actually, funnily enough, he, came, he was uh, brought up in Kirkcaldy. That I didn't know either. Uh, in five. <laughs> his, father was a, his father was a church minister. And, and he wrote these, because um, 39 Steps is uh, said to be based on the steps uh, in Kirkcaldy down from, uh, from Ravenscraig to the sea. Uh-huh. But John, John Buchan uh, was a great, was a great. There's more, there must be more than 39 of them, surely. Uh, probably. Yeah, but, it's pretty uh, steep. And 39 steps, I mean, the great, the great scene in 39 steps in the film is uh, on the fourth bridge, of course. Yeah. Well, so in the film, but not in the, the book. In the book. Um, and I went and saw the film recently. It's hilarious because they go through lots of moorland and highland That's scenery right. before they get to the fourth bridge. You're thinking, <laughs> this is obviously, well, obviously a virgin train. It's obviously a virgin train. It's got a very strange route there. Well done. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you talk about the, um, in the book again, the timeless idea. The reason I'm bringing this up is I think these are big ideas. The timeless idea of civic duty and the responsibilities each of us accepts we owe to others because there is such a thing as society. Now, when I read that sentence, there is such a thing as society, A, that seemed to me like a sly little dig at a previous prime minister. <laughs> um, and B, I wondered if she brought it up when she came to Downing Street for tea. We didn't talk about that. You didn't she talk was, about that. She was that. reminiscing, actually. She was, she was, was she reminiscing about a book that you wrote earlier in your career called Where There Is Greed, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher and the Betrayal of Britain's Future? <laughs> That's right. It was the right thing to write. Did, did she ask you to sign that copy for her? <laughs> no, she didn't, actually. Uh, I mean, there was a sense, you know, we had this kind of, this put down our throats that Britain uh, in the 80s was a greedy nation, that we were all becoming very greedy, we were becoming very um, self-absorbed. And do you, do you see that changing? I mean, how do you change that? Or wasn't it true in the first place? I mean, a, a lot of people um, talk about a broken society. I mean, I don't think the British people have ever been broken by anything or, or anyone. And I, I feel that uh, there is so much good being done in different parts of our country. See, if you take knives, this is our biggest problem at the moment in some of the cities of the country, because young people 
are, are thinking it's both acceptable, fashionable, and necessary for, for, for them to um, protect themselves, to, car to carry a knife. But just like we've made guns unacceptable, we should be making knives unacceptable. And you need role models to do that. You need young people who say to other young people, this is the wrong thing to do. You need evidence that actually carrying a knife makes you less safe and not safe because the tendency will be for people to use these uh, knives. And you need not just uh, young people, but parents and other people saying that knives in Britain, like guns, uh, like bullying, like all the different things we've had, like racism, all these things are unacceptable. So I think you have got to persuade people it's not a thing a government can do only, but people in the community have got to, in a sense, rise up and say this is unacceptable behaviour. And if we're a society now where we don't have these uh, very uh, tight rules that try to dictate every part of people's lives, that would be wrong. Uh, I think we have boundaries, and there are certain boundaries in a decent society that you don't cross. And some of these boundaries are cultural, because in America it is acceptable for many people to carry guns, but it's not in Britain. And I think in Britain we've got to make it as unacceptable uh, to carry knives. And so I think most decent people in our country would want to do that. And I think what you'll see over the next few months is a sort of campaign that is led not just by government, but by people in the country to say, get knives off our street, it's completely unacceptable. And I think you'll see people responding. You know, racism was kicked out of sport. Uh, bullying is now unacceptable it in playgrounds. Though, yeah, but you know, sectarianism in Scotland. I mean, you know, there's been huge campaigns mounted against that, and and, and very successfully in many instances. Uh, and I think you can see people change. And look, if in the 20th century we could get rid of all these evils uh, that uh, that uh, people thought it may be impossible uh, to dream that you could get rid of apartheid in 20 years, uh, we can get rid of these things that are happening in Britain by the community coming together. And I think we're, we're moving into a different uh, world where in the 20th century people looked at the state to do something or markets to do something, so it was incentives or commands. We're now also looking, I think, at how you can change culture. Um, Daniel Patrick Monion was the great senator in America, and he said uh, the good news for progressives, the bad news for progressives is that culture is important. The good news is that cultures can change. And I think just like outlawing, banning, by sort of making it unacceptable to carry knives. There's a lot of changes in our society that I think can be brought about by us all coming together. And that's why I think Britain is basically a decent, compassionate society, and most people want to see things change uh, for the better. I mean, the, um, as you say, the, the culture is changing, um, but in some cases the culture is changing not to bring us together, but seemingly to split us apart. I mean, you're talking throughout this conversation about British, Britain, Britishness, the British. Um, I mean, you know yourself that um, the SNP are doing rather well at the moment in Scotland. And I just wondered maybe mm. if we could talk a little bit about Britishness um, and what its strengths, you perceive its strengths as being, because I believe, and I've asked your publisher, and they said it's okay to mention this, that the book after the, the, the wartime heroes, the book after that is going to be on Britishness. Yeah, because uh, I think you go through phases in this. Um, in 1997, it was absolutely right, uh, because... Scots, the Welsh, they're in a minority in the United Kingdom. It's absolutely right uh, that uh, the desire for democratic um, accountability be recognised and we set up the Scottish uh, Parliament, set up the Welsh Assembly. We've now got a Northern Ireland Assembly which is uh, continuing to work as well. So it's right that where there are minorities as part of a, a huge uh, country, th the respect for these minorities is such that you, you go further in giving democratic rights. But I think you've also got to look at the other side of the equation, equation as well. What, what holds us uh, together. You know, in 1707, when Scotland uh, uh, joined the Union with England, only 3% of Scots, according to the historians, had English relatives. 
So there was very little contact between Scotland and England at the time there was the, the Union. Uh, and most Scots had nothing to do with uh, other people in England. Today, it's an amazing fact that 50% of Scots have relatives in England, close relatives in England. And so the level of intermarriage, the level of uh, connection across the borders is such uh, that it, it does sound strange that people are talking about us splitting up when there is such a level of uh, uh, connection at a, at a human level, at a family level between Scotland and England. And then you've got to look at, well, what is it that holds us together? People used to say it was the empire, the benefits of industrialization, the war years that we went through together. And then they said, well, that's maybe all that holds us together. I, I don't think that's the case. I think we share the same values about liberty, about democracy, uh, about uh, you know, the need for, for social cohesion and, and for people to work together cooperatively. I think we share respect for the same uh, and similar institutions, the principle of the health service. I wouldn't like to see healthcare being denied to a Scot in England or to an English uh, person in Scotland. Uh, I think the principle of the health service that we all accept is the right to healthcare in any part of the United Kingdom, the right to work in any part of the United Kingdom, the right to a pension, uh, no matter which part of the United Kingdom you live in. And I think when you start to look at the connections and the economic connections, and then these big questions about environment and security, I mean, you, you can't have a border and say on one side of the border you're free of climate change and the other side you're not, or security and say on one side of the border you're safe and on another side you're not. In an island, uh, we're all in this, uh, I I this together. And I think uh, once people start to look at that, they'll see that the need uh, for us uh, working together for a partnership a partnership on equal terms is the right thing for the future. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking in my mind, here's how the journalists are going to put that tomorrow. As the Prime Minister began speaking, the heavens opened. <laughs> in a, an ominous not downpour. Not yet thunder. Uh, no, not yet. Are you, are, you, are you still thinking you're going to see Riff Rovers this afternoon? I was, uh, I was hoping to. I'll probably be asked to play. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got your snorkel? Um, <laughs> Just before the um, Parliament broke off for the summer, it was reported that David Cameron had given his MPs a list of 30 books they should read um, during their summer holidays. I'm, I'm hoping you didn't do the same thing. No, I, I think it would be a you bit... Did, uh, uh, can you think of any books you might put on that list, though? No, I, th I think it's up to people to choose themselves what to read. There's some great books around at the moment. Not you, just well, yours. You not just yours. No, I wouldn't do that. Well, I mean, um, Fionn Fion Haig's book was on it. Yeah, was on I, I, I had a look at that book, actually. It's, uh, uh, Lloyd George, it's a, mm. it's a fantastic uh, story about uh, how he had time to have all these affairs. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, the question people might ask is, how do you get time to write all these books? <laughs> a lot of them were written before uh, I got this job. And also, Reid, I mean, I, I think you're, 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 you're I, I mean, I've not got anything to back this up, except I've got feeling that you're probably the best read Prime Minister we've had in the in a, a few generations. Yeah, well, I don't think, I don't think the amount you read uh, is, the, uh, is the equivalent of wisdom. I think uh, wisdom comes from other things, but I do try to keep up with what's, what's happening. And as I, as I say, there, there's, there's huge uh, changes taking place around, around the world that uh, I think we are increasingly uh, going to have to make decisions about and, and, and how we play this. And I think we're learning more, for example, and one of the fascinating things at the moment that I've been reading about is how young children start to learn and, and what we can do to help them realize their potential. Uh, and we're, we're learning about, if you like, the non-cognitive skills that are necessary for people to, to do well. So I think there's a, there's a whole series of things that I think are changing around the world. And the way we approach education in the future and the development of people's potential is going to be something very, very big. The, um, just to, I mean, to come to sort of um, square the circle, as it were, 
um, or as Muriel Spark once put it, the eternal triangle has come full circle. <laughs> uh, um, the uh, no, the um, <laughs> courage and, and heroes. Your PhD thesis, which I believe took you how long to write? Ten uh, years on and off. I started it yeah, in I nineteen. I, I started it in nineteen seventy-two. No, I only got three years to do mine. <laughs> uh, funding was limited. Um, was on Maxton. Wasn't yeah. it James Maxton? I didn't Maxton? get funded for 10 years. No. Oh, I'm sure you didn't. Was it James Maxton? No, it was on... Uh, was it, it was Labour on, Party? No, it was on social change after the First World War. I was interested in this period when uh, things were changing dramatically right around the world and what was actually happening in Britain and, and how it changed things in Britain. And have we learned lessons from that, do you think? Uh, someone told me that a good uh, uh, postgraduate thesis changed a line in an ordinary textbook, and I, don't, I didn't even get that far. <laughs> I, I don't think, uh, in the main, postgraduate thesis can sort of... Uh, you, but didn't you get the thesis published? You did, didn't you? Uh, I, got, I had a book, a book arising from the thesis published on... Was uh, it published by Mainstream? It was published by my friend Bill Campbell. Yep. And was that while you were working at Mainstream? <laughs> <laughs> they, they then sacked me as a director. <laughs> <laughs> Sales weren't that great then. They weren't that great. Sales weren't that great. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I'm going to open it up to a few questions from the audience because the Prime Minister very uh, bravely, with a bit of courage, I think, said that he would be happy to take a few questions from the audience. Um, we're hoping for members of the public rather than journalists, but let's see how we get on. Um, I've only really just scratched the surface, so if nobody's brave enough to ask a question, I've got plenty more, don't worry about it. Um, who are we going to start with? Where are the mics, by the way? We've got one mic there, we've got another mic there, okay. Um, can we go to that lady in the middle near the back? If you keep your hand up, and then we've got one, two... Okay, we'll see how we get one. Good morning, Prime Minister. Good morning. I would like to know how you write. Can I say, first of all, I'm from Truckee and Fife. Good. <laughs> Great cricketers. Yes, yes, even today. Uh, how do you write? I mean, do you write paper, pencil, uh, PC? <laughs> That's great. You get the same uh, questions I get. Well, you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got to prove I can write. You, you've already proved it. I've seen your handwriting. The, the, the <laughs> actually, I, I, I type, and uh, I, I'm very pleased to have someone from Fruki because I just met someone the other day who told me that the novel was going to be based on Fruki. So it's going to become uh, even more famous. In the, in the next few years. But I, when I was at university, I learned to do uh, two-finger typing on a, on a typewriter, and I still do on a computer. And one of my lecturers uh, said to me, you have finally proved that typing can be as illegible as writing. <laughs> I, I'm, I make so many mistakes, and I, I'm not very good at using a spell check. But it's, it's fascinating when you talk to writers. Some writers can only write first thing in the morning when they get up, and other writers, Roy Jenkins told me that when he was writing, he started, started at four o'clock in the afternoon with a glass of wine in front of him. And, and as he said, he got gradually inebriated as he, as he finished his lines. Uh, but the only time I can write is first thing in the morning. Uh, and, uh, and I write, as, as I said, uh, not uh, longhand or anything like that with a, with a computer, but making lots of uh, spelling mistakes. And that's how you can recognize my writing. You, d you don't do John Mortimer's thing of, of having a glass of champagne first thing in the morning, uh, writing no. till 11 a.m., then having some more champagne. No, it was, it was, it was, it was said of Churchill that he, he made a resolution late in life. Uh, instead of uh, never drinking before lunchtime, he made the resolution never to drink before breakfast. Yeah. Uh, but when you talk to the historian, uh, Sir Martin Gilbert, who's the expert on Churchill, uh, even I think Churchill's drinking was a bit exaggerated. I think he actually worked very, very hard indeed. 
Fair enough. Right, um, one over this side, if we can. There's a lady there. Could you put your hand right up, please, and so the microphone can see you? Thank you very much. Thanks for your question, and good luck in the cricket. <laughs> good morning, Mr. Brown. Good morning. Um, did I actually hear you say that rules for everything would be wrong? Yeah. Well, Absolutely. apart from sex and breathing, can you think of a single area in our private and personal lives that ha hasn't been interfered with now by your government? Oh. Well, I, I, I sort of disagree with that. I look, you know, it, it, <laughs> if you went back to the 17th century and uh, the church in Scotland and uh, John Knox, they were trying to impose rules for behavior in ev almost every part of people's lives. That, that's, I think, We've all moved away from that. What I was trying to emphasize was that there are boundaries. You, you don't need to interfere in people's lives, but there are boundaries that most decent people accept as um, good and necessary for the way uh, society runs. See, uh, if, if you're on a bus at the moment and you've got young, young kids playing uh, music uh, and annoying you, you, you feel that's a lack of discipline. If you've got kids spitting on the street, you feel that's a lack of discipline. If there's violence in a playground, it's lack of discipline. And basically, we have got to say this is a behavior that is unacceptable. It, it, you, do, you don't uh, censor people, but you might say this is wrong behavior. And I think these cultural changes are going to become more important, and how we can advance these cultural changes is, 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 is more important. And I would say that uh, in Britain, we've got a series of boundaries to cross which are unacceptable to most decent people. And that doesn't mean making laws about them. It means people saying with one voice, this is unacceptable behavior. And that was the point I was trying to make. OK. Um, <laughs> let's go. Where's, where's the mic? At this side? Oh, you're still back down here again. Uh, we'll take the front row, this gentleman in the front row. Um, good morning, Prime Minister. I, I know you're on your holes, so, so you don't have to answer this question, but, but you did make a passing reference to uh, the Make Poverty History campaign, 2005 and so on and so forth, and of course you yourself have said a great deal about uh, global warming and how important that is. Um, do you think these sorts of issues are going to be derailed by the seemingly ever-deepening problems over the uh, credit crisis. <coughs> it does, it's, it's not getting any better, Prime Minister. There, there, will be, there will be a tendency for people to say um, things are difficult in our own countries. Um, in America, the credit crunch is affecting all countries now. Perhaps an even bigger problem is that um, with the price of oil dramatically changing, it's really trebled over the last uh, two years the price of food rising dramatically around the world and it's affecting the basic things we buy, bread, milk and eggs have gone up pretty uh, fast over the last uh, year. There'll be a tendency to say that we should just withdraw and just sort out our own problem. The, the difficulty of that is that the problems that we have at the moment can only be sorted globally. So the, the problems of oil prices, you can't just deal with that in one country. You've got to get cooperation globally to get the price of oil down uh, and to get a change in the way we use oil uh, and the tyranny of oil on our lives has got to be altered. And the same with food. You can't solve the problem of food production in one country now. You've got to solve it around the world. And so if you take Make Poverty History, uh, it would be right to say that the argument has changed. But the argument, I think, is stronger. If we're going to solve the problem of food production around the world, then it's ridiculous that Africa 
with 70% of the people on the land is actually a net importer of food. You know, other countries have got 1% of the people in agricultural production, but Africa with 70% is still importing more food than it's exporting. And therefore, we've got to do something so that there's a green revolution in Africa enabling them to produce the food that they need. And equally, if we stand back from Africa and other parts of the world, then China and other countries are going to get more involved. Uh, and if we stand back, there's a security issue at stake as well here. I was at a school in Nigeria, in Abuja, and this school was, was basically falling down. And there were pupils sitting three to one desk. And so there was 150 pupils in this cramped, dilapidated cr classroom. Uh, and all of these pupils were amazing. They, they, you know, they wanted to be engineers, they wanted to be doctors, they wanted to be uh, nurses, they wanted to, to, to do all, none of them wanted to be prime ministers or presidents, by the way. Uh, but but, they, but they, they were in this cramped school, and yet down the road, there was a madrasas that had been set up by an extreme Muslim group, and it was offering free education. Free education in a new school, in a better school, a school financed by uh, money that had come from outside the country. Now, if we don't play our part in helping Africa and other countries to solve their problems, then other people will fi find that they can offer easy solutions, including the route to terrorism. So this is a security problem, as well as it's uh, a moral, ethical, and social problem about how different people in the world uh, deal with the problems they have. So I would say that this is the wrong time for us to withdraw uh, from uh, supporting the development that's necessary in Africa and elsewhere. And there is a special summit of the United Nations on September the 25th. And I think the aims from that summit have got to be that we, we finance uh, the Green Revolution in, in Africa, that we deal with this problem where 70 million children in the world are not going to school today or any other day because there's no schools to go to or there are dilapidated schools. And we do something else. We help solve some of these huge health problems that still exist. You know, why is there still polio? Why is there still tuberculosis? Why is there still diphtheria? Why is there still malaria? These are diseases that can be cured. And I think uh, with the scientific and technological and medical expertise we have, without huge amounts of money, these diseases can be cured. So this is not the time to withdraw. It's a time to work together and uh, make real the idea of global citizenship. Um, maybe you could... Um ask Nelson Mandela to have a word with uh, President Mugabe about um, food in uh, his country. Listen, We've come to the well, end of the... Absolutely right. We've come to the end, I'm afraid. I'm sorry I'm going to make you walk out into the rain. It sounds absolutely horrendous. <laughs> in fact, I'm not. I'm going to ask you to stay here for a, a few seconds more while the Prime Minister uh, leaves because he has other important engagements to go to, though perhaps not quite as important as this one. Absolutely. He has signed a number of books um, because he can't stick around for signing after. They are in the signing tent and like I say, it's a limited number. Charity. Um, and please, um, will you join me in thanking the Prime Minister? Well, right thank you for being right. a wonderful audience. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. you, 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 you. No, no. Thank you very much. Thank you.